Welcome to Connected Intelligence, a podcast about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. Join us in conversation about the building blocks that bring complex ideas to life. Not the code, calculations, or research, but the bonds between teammates, connection to your purpose, and the character that you build along the way. Welcome back, listeners. Today we have a special treat, the launch of our new recurring segment, A Global Affair with Professor Janice Stein. In these episodes, we will dig deep on a topic that influences society as we know it today, whether it is public policy, geopolitical issues, or the impact of technological advances. You are connecting with this podcast through some sort of a computer. Many semiconductor chips are connecting us together as you listen to this. So I wanted to ask Janice, why and how are we vulnerable to a supply shortage of semiconductors? A little about our guest before we start. Professor Janice Stein is a Canadian political scientist and international relations expert. She's the Bellsberg Professor of Conflict Management in the Department of Political Science and the founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Janice is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and a member of the Order of Ontario and the Order of Canada, among her many distinctions. In this episode, Janice discusses the structure of the global supply chain for semiconductor chips, the origins of geopolitical interests in Taiwan, and the urgency of developing other avenues for manufacturing semiconductors, the foundation of our digital age. Please enjoy our inaugural episode of A Global Affair with Professor Janice Stein. So Janice, welcome back to the podcast. It's lovely to see you. It's great to be with you, Sonia. Semiconductors are the unsung heroes of the technology world, Janice. Uh, With parts manufactured from pure elements that work behind the scenes, they power and connect everything from smartphones to cars to the computer that we're communicating on right now. Can you characterize the importance of semiconductors in our world right now? The simplest way to talk about this, I think, is that (laughs) almost everything that we've labeled smart over the last several decades runs on a semiconductor or uh, an advanced chip. There's a technical definition um, of what it is, but what's actually miraculous about semiconductors is they've done two things over the same time over the last 40 years. They've got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more and more and more powerful. Uh, That is the famous Moore's Law, um, which says that up until now, and let's just put that bracket, the power of these chips doubling every two years. In fact, in some cases, more than doubled. But what he didn't say was that the chips were getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So just think about this. If you could put an ever smaller chip under your fingernail and double the power you got out of it every two years, most of us would just be wizards. (laughs) That's the easiest way to explain, I think, how important um, silicon chips are. Why silicon, by the way? And not a coincidence that Silicon Valley (laughs) is called Silicon Valley because the silicon in Silicon Valley comes from this material that is on the surface of the chip that has very special properties 
uh, that allowed these chips to get more and more and more powerful. So if you're listening to this on your phone, uh, you've got a semiconductor powering your phone and enabling you to do that. If you listen to it on your computer, same thing. It's, they're so pervasive, we don't even think about them. Moore's law right now is said to be plateauing. Yeah. And one of the things that we're seeing is as these chips are getting smaller and smaller, the heat dissipation is becoming an issue, which means we're we're limited in how much smaller we can make them by right. and and increasing the compute power. How is that affecting our current state of affairs? So we're going deep into the science here. Um, and I am certainly out of my depth here. You are not, Sonia. So I'm going to bounce this ball back to you in a minute. Uh, but it's interesting, of course, because um, as you said, people think we may be beginning to approach the limits whenever that happens really innovative engineers find new ways to do things. So there are two ways, one more radical than the other um, in the next generation. One is the way they're packaged. So something that sounds very simple, semiconductor packaging is actually very shorthand phrase for a very complicated process, where again, to use English here, rather than science speak, um, these chips will be tied together. So if you just think about that, that you tie teeny, teeny things together, uh, but because you do that, you have the capacity to layer on more transistors. Um, and that can provide a way out for a while from Moore's Law. And of course, over the frontier, but not that far over, is new material science which is beginning to explore alternatives to silicon for chips. And I don't know what will happen then. What will we call Silicon Valley if that's ultimately where we are uh, a decade from now? So I don't think there's an, uh, a ceiling on power. There's a ceiling on the way we are currently um, producing and enhancing power um, in microchips which is itself extraordinary, but I don't think we're anywhere near the ceiling yet. There's a very unique process to create these semiconductor microchips, which are in everything from washing machines to cell phones, to computers, to cars. Everything. What is unique about that process? And how is our current supply chain structured to bring those to market? Okay, so if we move away from the science now, the what of semiconductor, semiconductors, look at how, which is what, what I think you're asking, Sonia. Um, the supply chain um, has for advanced semiconductors. And when we say advanced, we are now talking about the very smallest. <laughs> and you see why they're the most advanced. So we are talking about um, three nanometers, tiny, tiny semiconductors. So the supply chain to the best that of our knowledge, because it's complicated to map, 16,000 companies participate in the making of these tiny chips. And these companies are distributed um, all over the world, frankly. So no 
one country, with, there are two exceptions to this. And I'm talking about the most advanced right now, okay? Um, no one country actually controls the supply um, of these tiny nano chips, except two, okay? There are two exceptions because if you think about a chain, think about going through 16,000 steps to get to your final destination. That's the easiest way to talk about a supply chain, right? And there are two steps at the end that everybody has to go through in order to get to the finish line. One is in the Netherlands, and there's a company called NMSL, which does the most advanced lithography, the most um, advanced and precise etching on these chips, which effectively lays the groundwork um, for the electricity that will be conducted through these semiconductors. And this is one company in the world now um, that can do this. So everything goes through the Netherlands and it ends up uh, 90% of the advanced semiconductors in the world end up in one company the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which is located in Taiwan. It was founded by a Chinese um, citizen of the United States who was born in China, came to study in the United States, worked in Intel, which was the pioneer at that time, um, didn't get the promotion. <laughs> that he wanted um, and he felt he deserved, and I think he did, um, at Intel and the government of Taiwan reached out and said, come home, and he did. And he asked himself the question that I think all great business leaders ask themselves, what can I contribute to an important product that nobody else is doing? Mm -hmm. And that's where he, in effect, it is fabrication. <laughs> in fancy word, they're called fabs. But what that really means, I don't design them, but I make them. <laughs> and that company today still makes 90% of the advanced ships in the world. Now, that's what ties the story into broader geopolitics. When you have a critical company, um, both that supply, it supplies both industry in the United States and it supplies industry in China. Neither can do without the products that come from this one company that is located on an island that is a flashpoint um, of potential conflict. Um, that is what is making everybody very nervous and probably led directly to the CHIPS Act in the United States. The CHIPS Act, or the Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors and Science Act, was signed into law in August of 2022. It's designed to boost U.S. competitiveness, innovation, and national security. The law aims to catalyze investments in domestic semiconductor manufacturing capacity, and also seeks to jumpstart R&D and commercialization of leading edge technologies like quantum computing, 
AI, clean energy, and nanotechnology. This is a $280 billion commitment in spending over the next 10 years by the US government. Within this, $52 billion is for semiconductor manufacturing, research and development, and workforce development. I wanted to understand from Janice, why is it so important for countries like the United States to secure their semiconductor supply chain? What makes people worry about a secure supply of advanced semiconductors in the United States, for example, is a deliberate disruption of the supply by China. For example, were China to blockade Taiwan, take that just as a hypothetical, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company would, one, be cut off from its own suppliers, <laughs> so it wouldn't be able to produce chips, and secondly, wouldn't be able to export them. So the most advanced sectors of the U.S. economy would come grinding to a halt. That would be a deliberate, um, geopolitically induced disruption to a supply chain. Now, let's come back to what the United States and others want to do about that. COVID was something entirely different. Mm-hmm. Um, less in China, actually, as a result of their strategy for managing COVID. But um, in, in parts of in Taiwan, for sure, there were disruptions because workers stayed home when they got sick. It's as simple as that. Uh, and if they weren't getting sick, their suppliers were getting sick. So think again, China had very low incidence of COVID in Taiwan, very, very low. Taiwan handled the epidemic better than almost any other country in the world. But the Netherlands, <laughs> which is that a critical step in getting to that destination, um, had multiple waves of COVID. And so the pieces that you need in that supply chain to make the next piece um, didn't come. And that's what we mean when we say throwing sand in the gears of the supply chain. Very complicated chains which connect to the ultimate pro to the ultimate product. If you disrupt one piece, you actually shut it down. And so there was a shortage um, of advanced semiconductors. Now, how does the average person listening to this product experience that? Well, look at the price of cars, to take one example. Cars, I always say, are computers wearing fancy steel dresses. That's all (laughs) they are now. That's how I describe cars. Um, And some of the dresses are better designed than others, but that's really what they are. And there were shortages of the advanced semiconductors that they needed. So car prices went up. Mm -hmm. If there's one thing that most people um, have felt um, post-COVID when their car died or their leases were up or whatever it is, there is a significant sticker shock. That comes everybody's way when you compare what it costs to buy or lease a car before COVID and what the cost is now. It's really stunning. The difference all has to do with the disruption, not delivered in that case, mm-hmm. uh, but nevertheless, disruption of the global supply chain. And even though it's eased, those prices have not really come down in a meaningful way. The biggest contributor right now to core inflation in Canada is the price of cars and the price of food, which is really stunning. 
that's a supply chain problem because we don't grow enough food in this country. And anyway, the kind of food we want to eat, we don't grow for sure. So anybody who likes raspberries or blueberries. Avocados. Avocados. You are eating things that are part of a complicated supply chain. And if you need to lease a new car or buy a used car, that's a function of that supply chain. So these supply chain problems are not abstract things. They really have an impact um, on consumers in their everyday life. If TSMC, as you mentioned, became the the fabricator of 90% of the chips that are in our world. Yeah. When the U.S. launched the CHIPS Act, what were they trying to achieve with it? So here's the issue with the United States. It started under Donald Trump, but Joe Biden took it to an entirely new level. And here's the difference. Under Trump, who became increasingly concerned about China's arrival, a lot of discussion that China might overtake the United States um, in advanced technologies, which doesn't really mean a lot, as you know well, Sonia, because it depends which technology, which product, at what stage. So these very general statements are really not helpful at all. But Trump began um, the limiting of exports of very, very advanced material. Um, which China needs. And why does China need it? Although China has been trying for two decades to grow a domestic capacity to manufacture the most advanced chips, it still hasn't succeeded. It manufactures below that level and more than it needs, it exports into global markets. Uh, It still has not developed the capacity to Um, make chips uh, of the kind that the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company is making. Why does that matter to China? Well, you can't advance an AI if you don't have the most advanced chips. You can't advance in quantum computing. Your compute power, as you said, will suffer. So as long as China cannot do this on its own, it depends on Taiwan, and we should come back to that. Um, to stay competitive at the cutting edge of global technology. And that's what Trump was trying to change. Biden went to a completely different level with the CHIPS Act. And he went um, to the place you described at the beginning. The CHIPS Act is designed to make the United States less vulnerable to a deliberate supply chain disruption. And what does that mean? United States leads the world in the design of advanced semiconductors, but it manufactures, fabricates 16%, that's all. Which So that $50 billion is going in to standing up fabs, <laughs> you know, manufacturing of the most advanced computer chips and Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing was enticed to come to Arizona okay. and open a fab. But interestingly enough, and here's where this is not a sure bet. This is not a sure bet at all. Um, first of all, Taiwan is still not manufacturing the most advanced chips in Arizona. 
it's just below that level, but it's not the most advanced. Those are still only in Taiwan. And why is that, Janice? So that's an interesting question. Why? Right? So here's what the CEO, TSMC, says. Not going to be unfamiliar to people. Well, labor is much more expensive. Sure is. <laughs> in Arizona, in comparison to Taiwan, workers work longer hours in Taiwan. They work 12 hours a day and they will work six days a week. Um, that is, I don't think, an accurate description of um, the American labor force. Um, advanced fabrication is a high precision activity, which requires a highly trained and disciplined workforce that don't deviate. <laughs> That does not deviate by a nanometer, right? The American labor force um, has a new idea every minute. The best of it is constantly innovating. So what Chang did in Taiwan, which was so brilliant, he found the area which was most important and the best fit. Um, for the labor force that he has in Taiwan. And then the CEO is very explicit. He can't replicate um, in the United States what the labor force this that is specifically trained for this in Taiwan can do. So it's a labor issue, a talent issue, a and culture a, issue. a change culture. management issue as well. A culture issue. Are you willing to take orders? <laughs> And follow an exact process. Exactly. It is the most, you know, it is so precise, this process. Are you willing to be highly supervised? Are you willing to have um, very exacting quality control built into the manufacturing process? Now, there's some sectors of the U.S. um, economy that do that, but this really requires just extraordinary precision. Almost like a military approach. It is. It is. Right. Um, And so there's a lot of skepticism. uh, One, whether TSMC will succeed. It will certainly succeed at a lower level of precision. And there's a lot of skepticism that any government can really pick winners. Uh, There's two kinds of industrial policy. Let me put it this way. There's picking winners. Occasionally, we get very, very lucky. But over time, that strategy generally does not work. Um, much, a, a whole different discussion. Um, how can you invest public dollars to enable, right, the conditions for success? So advanced training, highly skilled workforce, highly disciplined workforce, a workforce with all the social benefits and the health insurance, Uh, that you need for this kind of demanding um, commitment over time. That's uh, uh, an approach that looks at the underlying conditions and tries to build an engineer for success. Very different from St. Intel, build two more plants, which is what it's doing. And TSMC, you build a plant and hoping that in the next 10 years, the United States will be able to grow its share uh, of manufacturing. The third element in the debate is also interesting. Um, you could argue that the lines of battle are now drawn. Um, Xi Jinping has said 
explicitly, and the United States wants to kneecap China's economy. It is determined to stay number one. It will not allow China to grow um, and, be, and match its capacity. It's a strategy of economic containment. And so what you would expect then is they are going to double down on their investment. And they have a capacity to do that, to make long-term investments, to grow their own capacity. It may take a decade, but it could redouble their commitment. That, so you have one world where both are investing um, in an effort to become self-sufficient and the world fundamentally divides, or the world we're in now, where both China and the United States are dependent on one company in Taiwan, and so neither have an incentive to blockade that island and disrupt a, a supply chain, which is critical to the success of both economies. That $52 billion, for example, that the U.S. is investing in developing their capacity on the other side, as you mentioned, China developing their capacity, it's all in an effort for them to become self-sustaining. Yeah, it's all in an effort to make them, each of them, less vulnerable to deliberate disruptions by the other. So China has already been made vulnerable by what the United States has done. If you look at, for example, Huawei, which was China's leading global champion, uh, when it was deprived of access to these advanced semiconductors, its share of global markets dropped. Um, its share price dropped. So if you're sitting in Beijing right now, you already feel you've been made vulnerable to a deliberate disruption. You want to protect yourself. Um, in Washington, uh, the president's team is anticipating that there will be a deliberate disruption by China as soon as it has the capacity to do so. And so nobody assumes that the United States will ever manufacture 90% or 80% or even 40%, I think, would be high. But at the very least, grow its capacity so that if there were a disruption, it could supply some of the most advanced sectors of its economy with what it would need. So it's risk mitigation on both sides. Risk mitigation. But risk mitigation sounds great, right? That's what we're all supposed to do. We're all supposed to mitigate risks. But your strategy of risk mitigation feels to me like an aggressive strategy, right? And my strategy of risk mitigation feels like it's aggressive and aimed at you. And that's the problem here. And it's legitimate for both sides to feel that way by the way. Biden, it was very interesting. He was just in Hiroshima for a summit um, and said, not few people caught this comment actually, said that he expects a thaw. Um, so he's aware of the risks here, of the dangers of a spiral upward. And he's looking for a way to resume conversations um, with Xi Jinping, not in a naive way. Um, there are elements of, of deep competition here, uh, but you can, if you have deep competition that goes alongside with areas of collaboration, that's a much better world 
um, than the kind of all-out language we've heard over the last four years. And what are potential areas of collaboration in our future runs on semiconductors, remote working, the proliferation of artificial intelligence, the soaring demand for electric vehicles? What are areas of collaboration that you see that could be? Well, you know, it's very interesting that the areas you just talked about are all areas right now of U.S.-China competition. So electric vehicles, China controls 80 percent of the supply of the critical minerals, uh, both access to these minerals and processing of these minerals, which go into electric batteries. So you can understand how a car manufacturing country like the United States and Canada, because we're integrated into a single industry, we have an integrated North American car industry, would worry about that one, right? Artificial intelligence, which um, I think you would agree, Sonia, um, and it depends what we mean by AI, what version of AI. Uh, yeah, there's thousands of different versions of AIs here, uh, but this is the platform technology um, that is the equivalent probably to electricity, mm-hmm. changing our economies and changing our societies and our cultures and our workplaces. Well, the United States and China are competitors. Uh, interesting where China leads. China leads in facial recognition <laughs> because that's what its political system privileges, right? The United States large language models because in the United States and ChatGPTs two, three years ahead. Why? Because researchers in China can't train their large language models on an open internet in the way that you can in the United States. So each one of them leads in areas that reflect uh, broader social and cultural advantages that they have. Uh, so, so when people say China's ahead, my answer is always in what? Yeah. US in what? You need a really granular, detailed discussion. These very general statements um, don't make any sense, but they're clearly competitors there. So where could you really see quantum computing is another, right? And we all know compute power, um, which means the capacity to do ever larger, more sophisticated um, calculations that consume vast amount of energy, by the way, which is something that we don't really talk about, um, is also foundational for the next decade. So where could they collaborate? Pandemic prevention, global health, right? That's overwhelmingly in the interest of both countries. Um, Hard for China to open up, and it has not. But it's not inconceivable that on a going forward basis, you could see really creative people um, designing platforms where they could work together. Climate change, there is not a hope and a prayer have meaningful progress on climate change. There's no way we get to two degrees warming, much less 1.5, unless China and the United States collaborate, collaborate, right? And put in place some common targets and compensate countries that um, historically do not have the resources to make these kinds of investments. Those are two existential challenges for both countries. That are that are culturally irrelevant because it's it's interesting that you said the areas where they're most competitive and where they'll have the strengths are rooted in what culturally they're set up to succeed right. in. Right. And these are two issues that 
they're, they're genuinely global, right? Yeah. I mean, we know that a virus doesn't care what language you speak or what culture you have. Uh, it likes you no matter what, right? <laughs> it doesn't care about your racial background or your gender or anything like that. Uh, it is it is truly blind. Um, and in that sense, it's a truly global Same with climate change, right? It's a huge, huge problem for China. Um, so I think Biden is right um, to work hard to try to find areas of collaboration. But again, just think about this message. I want to work with you. I want to collaborate with you, but I'm going to race as hard as I can to beat you in all the technologies that are going to shape their economic future for the next 10 years. I'm going to cut you off from access to prevent you from catching up with me. I'm going to cut you off. You don't get those advanced running shoes um, because I want to win this way. So, oh, by the way, let's work together. Right. Pretty hard message. Doesn't line up. And that's the blowback that we're getting. So now each country has a unique relationship with Taiwan, given the background you've given us on the importance of Taiwan in the semiconductor supply chain, the global supply chain. How is that unfolding right now, given the investment internally in the US and China in developing their own capacities? So Taiwan um, is an island just off the coast of the mainland of China, uh, about as about as distant as Cuba is from Florida, frankly, to put this in context. Um, there were um, indigenous Taiwanese who lived on that island. But in 1949, when the Nationalist Party in China, the Kuomintang, it was called the KMT, lost the civil war in China, was defeated by the Chinese Communist Party. Its leadership left the mainland and went to the island. And they have governed um, Taiwan ever since. Chinese Communist Party has always insisted that Taiwan is part of China. And the real issue that's up, and the United States acknowledged that when President Nixon went to China in 1971. And that's where you get this phrase, one China, two systems. Right. So the real issue is, can there be peaceful, voluntary unification um, of Taiwan when at some point its citizens um, vote uh, to do so? Uh, and if that doesn't happen, um, how long is China prepared to tolerate what is functionally um, an independent Taiwan that is recognized by almost nobody because the whole world, in a sense, um, has bought into one China, two systems. In Taiwan, over the last 10 years, the internal politics have become much less favorable to any form of reunification with China. They've seen what happened in Hong Kong. They are not impressed with what two systems really looks like. And for our listeners that may not be as familiar, Janice, would you mind sharing a bit? You know, Hong Kong, uh, again, uh, was colonized by Great Britain. Um, Great Britain agreed to return Hong Kong to China after in 50 years. That return happened. 
Um, China promised to respect Hong Kong's autonomy. And when it confronted demonstrations by Hong Kongers um, who wanted to elect their own legislative assembly, uh, that was really just a shorthand for wanted to grow their democratic rights and practices. China cracked down really hard, passed a law which made most of this kind of activity labeled terrorism and a criminal offense. And no free press left in Hong Kong, uh, or almost none, very little opportunity for dissent. Um, and so Taiwan looked at that with great alarm and said, this is exactly what we do not want to happen to us under any circumstances. Xi Jinping has said that the reunification of China will happen by 2047, 2048, the 100th anniversary um, of the accession to power of the Chinese Communist Party. That's not long. And there are some who worry that he will do it sooner, that he wants this to happen when he is leader of China. Here's the other side of the story. We're China. Even to blockade Taiwan, much less attack and invade, it would cripple its economy for the reasons that we talked about. It would be cut off from access to these advanced semiconductors in this world. Same would be true for the United States. So a war over Taiwan is a lose-lose for both countries. Does China wait until it actually has the capacity to manufacture the most advanced semiconductors? 10 years, who knows? Um, that's one hypothesis. But uh, the president of Taiwan has spoken about, and Morris Chang, the founder of the Taiwan Semiconductor Company, has talked about this as well. He says we have a silicon shield. That the strongest reason China has not to use force to um, occupy Taiwan in any way is because it needs those advanced semiconductors. And the cost of disrupting that supply chain would be so huge. It's the unique concept, the silicon shield. How do you feel the United States is viewing their relationship with Taiwan? You know, it, again, the United States has two parties. <laughs> it's more polarized now than it has been in at least 100 years, frankly. Um, there's a, but having said that, there's a strong bipartisan consensus um, that the United States has major strategic interests in Taiwan for the reasons that we talked about. And because other allies in the United States, Japan, South Korea, um, the Philippines would look with horror at a China that was able to get away with the occupation of Taiwan. And so, um, even though there's no formal defense treaty, unlike NATO, there is no formal defense treaty that commits the United States to go to the assistance of Taiwan if it is attacked. And they've always been ambiguous about what they would do in an effort to keep their options open. Biden, three times in the last two years, when he was asked, would the United States defend Taiwan? If it were attacked, he answered yes. 
and then his advisors walked him back. But it's clear what he thinks. And that's what makes Taiwan the most dangerous spot in the whole world, frankly. Janice, you recently were an honoree, Testimonial Dinner Award honoree by the Public Policy Forum here in Canada. And during your speech, you talked about the artificial intelligence revolution, an all-encompassing revolution. But one layer below, the conversation around semiconductors is at the heart of that. And how do you best characterize for our listeners or anyone that you you speak to just the urgency and importance of getting the next phase of the semiconductor global supply chain strategy right? Yeah, I, I think it's probably the biggest issue that both China and the United States face. For everybody who's doing research on AI right now, you take you take advanced ships for granted, but you shouldn't, okay? The same is true in China. Uh, if that supply chain is disrupted, all the work in AI will grind to a halt, frankly, and will slow down. Uh, there are huge spillover effects into the larger economy in both societies if that supply chain is disrupted. So the biggest strategic question that the United States and China face, how do you structure the supply chain to make yourself less vulnerable without provoking the other side into retaliatory measures that lock both of them into an escalatory spiral? That's why you need strategists to think about that question. Chat GPT-4 is not going to get (laughs) away. We can't just type it in. No. <laughs> have there ever been instances where countries have hoarded chips or have there been accusations of, of stockpiling chips? Well, you know, even during COVID, we saw it to some degree, right? There, it was small, but we saw that uh, as companies, so car companies stockpile because they, they couldn't manufacture. Uh, and the market was asking for their product, but they couldn't manufacture it. So they did. And that's that's entirely, um, you know, that's entirely possible. But again, if you think how quickly these chips advance, there's not a lot of incentive to stockpile yeah. a chip, right? A chip that will conceivably be better six to nine months later, which is what characterizes. Uh, the semiconductor industry. So hoarding wasn't just a toilet paper issue? No. (laughs) Janice, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you, Sonia. It's a pleasure to join the podcast and it's a pleasure to be with your listeners. Welcome to The Debrief, the meeting after the meeting. We're joined by your host, Sonia Senek, and a couple of her friends from work, Amar Kaur and me, Elizabeth Chim. Hello. Hi, Sonia. (laughs) Hi, Sonia. Janice took us into the world of chips. There's a big world of chips. You're talking about potato chips. Well, you said the world of chips, so you can take that anyway. You want to specify. Yeah. Just briefly on potato chips. So many flavors. I wonder if there's some sort of statistic on how many flavors of potato chips there are. If you've ever gone to like an international supermarket, there is a plethora of flavors you have never seen as well. Like the international markets have a whole different ball game. So Amar has shared the stat that Lay's potato chips alone has 286 flavors. If you asked me to name 286 flavors, I don't think I could. I would have said 15. (laughs) 
<laughs> Way off. <laughs> this is like that discussion of human emotions where like most people can name like four, but there's actually like over 80 of them. Isn't it interesting that we can name fewer emotions than chips? For some people, chips are highly connected to emotion. Yeah. I was going to say that next. Well done, Elizabeth. That was a good one. I keep a bag of Doritos in my work desk at all times. It's my emergency bag. I don't think you should make that public. (laughs) They may disappear. Well, then it's done its job. (laughs) Um, What flavor? Original. Although my favorite is Cool Ranch. I was going to say, I see you as a Cool Ranch person. Thank you. (laughs) So just, just on that note of like how many um, semiconductors there are. So there's the the stat that in 2021, almost 1.14 trillion chips were sold in the world. That's about 140 chips for every person on the planet or 130 million per hour. If they were all stacked on top of one another, they would extend beyond the maximum cruising altitude for commercial aircraft. And they're so thin. Seven nanometer. The most advanced chips are as small as seven nanometers. Um, That's 10,000 times smaller than the width of human hair. Wow. So not specifically related to semiconductors, but it got me thinking when Janice was talking about just how important these are to every single device that we're using on the daily now. I was just thinking like, In the times of analog technology, what do you think you two would be doing? What do you think your hobbies would be? What do you think your profession would be? Amar? Only analog technology. I don't know. (laughs) See, that's an issue, isn't it? Because as soon as those semiconductor supply chains get caught up, then what are you going to do, Amar? Photography. but actually you would be going into a dark room and exposing your photographs yourself. I'd have to learn that because I only learned digital, but that would be very interesting. I think that's the only thing I would do. Like I'm trying (laughs) to think of all the other things I do and photography translates to the analog world. Yeah. I think you would really like dark room work. It's like therapeutic. Elizabeth, what would you do? All of my like current interests and hobbies can still be done without semiconductor technology. My espresso machine does have a computer chip in it, but you can have analog espresso machines that just worked on steam power, right? I wonder if the analog espresso tastes different. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. So I would see myself working on machines. Analog machines. Locomotion. Locomotion. Like a a train or, you know, developing cars, fixing cars. Something that's very tactical, but also gives you an opportunity to get somewhere. I could see that being really my thing in an analog world. Yeah. Remember Janice said that cars are just semiconductors with fancy dresses. There was a time when that wasn't true. (laughs) And... At that time, I think that's where I would have put some of my energy. Listeners, before we sign off, it has now officially been one year of the Connected Intelligence podcast. Thank you so much 
to our listeners for tuning in every Thursday, for sending us your feedback, for staying curious about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. Season five kicks off next week and we have some really special guests in store. I cannot wait to share our conversations with you. Until then, 